For the last 11 years, audiobooks have seen double-digit sales growth year over year. The market for audiobooks is now $1.8 billion. Audiobooks are growing faster than ebooks and faster than paperback and hardback. For some comparison, the Kindle Unlimited pot in the last year was around half a billion dollars. So for every dollar spent on Kindle Unlimited books, roughly $4 are spent on audiobooks. And I know many authors who make more money from their audiobooks than they do from paper and ebooks combined. In fact, there are some months when I make more money from my audiobook than I do from my paperback or my ebook. What this means is that audiobooks are no longer optional. They're no longer a nice to have add-on if you're feeling rich. If your book doesn't have an audiobook, it signals to readers that it's not good enough to be worth an audiobook. Some readers interpret this to mean that even the paperback or ebook must not be any good if the publisher wasn't willing to make an audiobook version. This is why not having an audiobook at launch hurts your overall book sales. Not only do you miss out on all those audiobook sales, but you're potentially hurting your ebook and paperback sales as well. So, you know you need an audiobook, but how do you make that happen? Should you read it yourself or should you hire a narrator? Where do you even start? We'll find out in this episode of Novel Marketing, the longest running book marketing podcast in the world. I'm Thomas Umstead, Jr., CEO of Author Media, and this is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and make a living writing books worth talking about. And we have a special guest today who knows a lot about audio and audiobooks. He's a number one New York Times bestselling author who's narrated his own audiobooks, done his own podcast, and worked with professional narrators. He has seen success both as a traditionally published author and as an indie author and as a podcaster. Scott Sigler, welcome to the Novel Marketing Podcast. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. You're a little bit unique in that you're the first of, I would say, a new generation of writers who are writing with the idea of the audiobook foremost in your mm -hmm. mind as you're writing the book, which is very new, right? 50 years ago, that's not what people were thinking. They weren't thinking, how is this sentence going to sound when read by a narrator? So how do you write a book to sound good as an audiobook? Well, there's a couple of steps to it for me. The first part is what I learned while recording my own audiobooks to podcast. And I used to be much more verbose than I am as a writer now. And frankly, was quite impressed with my ability to describe things and set the scene, provide detail, and a lot of other things of that nature. When I started to read my own books out loud, I found there were parts of the books that I was getting bored at with my own writing, reading it out loud. <laughs> like, there's just so much fat here. So I started to cut stuff out then. And the second part of it was I had to listen back to every single word and edit the whole audio. I was editing an audiobook, frankly. And again, when listening back to it, I got bored in other parts. So even though I write very big books, my style is very short and punchy. There's very short paragraphs, a lot of one sentence paragraphs, a lot of things where I can pace myself through the page when I listen to it in audio. And that has continued on. So I've had some success as an author. So now when I write a book, I've got a much better eye to ear ratio for understanding how it's going to sound. And the last thing I do with a chapter before I mark for final draft is I will have uh, Scrivener or Microsoft Word read that chapter back to me with the computer voice. And I still pick up stuff like, don't need this, that's repeated. Th little things like there and there, I've got different instances of the word, but they're too close to each other, so it sounds confusing. 
I'm now much more attuned to see, hearing things, even if it's absolutely correct on the page, it sounds weird, or these two words are too close together. They pull you out of the story long enough for you to process what's going on. And my style is, uh, I, I put a lot of emphasis that once I get you into the story, I don't have any, what I call speed bumps. There's nothing that, that reminds you you're reading and nothing that, that reminds you you're listening to an audiobook. You're lost in the story. So all three of those things together have, have impacted my style. Everything revolves around the audiobooks. And when I do my self-narrated audiobooks, when I'm the narrator, we change things on the fly, in the booth. I'll tell the producer, be like, Mark, line through these items, change this, because it just didn't sound right when it came out of my mouth. When I was in Little League, my coach didn't let us practice on the fancy Little League fields, and we hated him for it. He took us to this old, broke-down field that was all weeds and rocks. And we we're like, why do we have to play on this terrible field? And he's like, if you can learn to catch a grounder on this field, you'll have no trouble catching a grounder in the game. And if your book can sound good when read by the monotone text-to-speech accessibility feature on your computer, then it will sound good when read by a professional narrator or when read by you. Like That's a, such a powerful technique, and it doesn't cost any money. Every computer made in the last 20 years has had text-to-speech that's monotone and terrible. Now, recently, computers have gotten really good at making it sound human. But for this, you don't want that. <laughs> you want Siri's monotone voice to sound good, and that's when you know, okay, this book is ready now to hand to a professional or for me to read it myself, which brings up the question, right? You're a successful author now. You've got money. You can hire professional narrators, and you do. So why would you read it yourself when you could hire a professional? Well, I used to read everything myself because I couldn't hire a professional. And we were initially reading the first four books, full-length novels, unabridged. We were releasing those as podcasts. So the podcast was the gist of everything, and I thought that would bring publishers to me. So I got good at reading audiobooks. I wouldn't say I am pro caliber, but there is something magical about the person who wrote the story reading it to you. And you have a huge amount of forgiveness in the audience. If you're not the best at speaking through the parts, you're not the best actor. You get a lot of leeway on all of those things. Of course, I've done, I don't know, I think 10, 12 full length audiobooks. Now you just get better at it. So now I think I can deliver the audiobooks quite well. But we're in a situation now where if I go into the booth to record an audiobook, that is possibly three weeks where I'm not writing a book or editing a book that I'm going to put out later on. So there's an opportunity cost. And if you're as aggressive as we've been in the past and are putting out two novels a year, plus maybe a novella, plus maybe some short stories, you're now talking about possibly eight weeks where you're not in front of the keyboard. So that wound up being a big business decision for us because we just weren't putting stuff out fast enough for my taste. We don't rush through the writing, but when you're not in front of a keyboard at all, no work is getting done in that area. So we started to hire out other people to do the audiobooks, and that's worked out extremely well for us. But we still have some series of the Galactic Football League series I do right now that is six full novels, six novellas, two of which are actually novel length. I have read all of those, and the audience expects a certain style of delivery. They expect certain accents and certain character personifications. So I will continue to do those. As somebody who's listened to all of those books, if you hired a professional, I don't care who you'd hire. I'd be angry. <laughs> I need your voice because, and, and this is actually really important. When you're picking a series, whoever you start with is kind of who you're stuck with, in, yep. unless they were really awful the first time, because readers grow attached to 
the voices that the narrator gives those different characters. And it's kind of like if you're watching a TV show where a actor will be replacing but playing the same character, right? You can get away with that one time. But if they replace all of the actors, it's really disorienting and audiences don't like it. Readers don't like it. And so you can't switch midstream, but like with a new series, then you can. So keep that in mind as you're looking for narrators. This is kind of a long-term commitment. You can get a new cover designer, you can get a new editor, but that narrator you're kind of stuck with. That's a huge thing to keep in mind. It's not just getting someone who can do the job, who has the gear. You need to click with that person. And the narrator needs to click with your work and get your work. We have the Generations Trilogy, which is Alive, Alight, and Alone. And that was out by Del Rey. And we wound up going out and getting a big-time narrator and found that the narrator did not want to listen to direction at all, didn't want any input, would just go dark and then just show up with a finished audiobook. And even though we we're like, I would record all the pronunciations, I would do a full phonetic pronunciation guide, this performer didn't care and just ignored all of that. So by the end of the second book, when we were pretty sure we wouldn't get it out on time, and there's an enormous amount of stress in our company because of this, we're like, that's it, we're changing the narrator for book three. And people were upset. People did not like it. The, the hardcore fans who know me well and knew the story, they were fine with it. But people who didn't know me, didn't know the brand, just picked up the series. Yeah, they were not happy. There was a new narrator for book three. So finding that person and, and establishing a connection with a narrator who's going to be there for the whole series is a really, really important thing. It's not easy to do, but that's something you should strive for. But I do like Doing it yourself in the early days. And this is actually really common for a lot of authors. When they're first getting started and they haven't tasted success yet, they don't have a lot of money and they're having to do a lot of things themselves. And that actually really helps them as an author get better. Right? There's one thing editing your own writing, but then when you have to edit your own audio, you hear it. This is also a pro tip if you're thinking about starting a podcast. Even if you can afford an editor for at least the first 10 episodes, edit it yourself. Make yourself cut the ums out. And you'll get better faster doing that. Other than editing the audio, which is really good, what are some other ways of getting better reading the audiobook yourself? I think the first thing is don't set your expectations too high with your first book. So if you've got that magnum opus that you've been working on, that's great. But do you have an earlier work? Is there almost a throwaway book you've got, a trunk novel that you can pull out because the process of learning to record and edit and hearing yourself on the mic, it's very jarring to start with. And it takes a long time for you to sort of get adapted to the sound of your own voice. And you need that in order to relax to get into the role. Also, the reason I suggest this is if, if you don't set expectations too high with that first book, you'll relax enough that you will get to know that your voice is perfectly fine to read your own book. It saves a ton of money, saves a ton of trouble. You don't have to herd cats, you don't have to manage anything. You record at your own pace, you edit your own pace, and you just put the book out. When you're done with that first book, you'll have a much better understanding of the whole process. This will help you connect with a narrator down the road if you want to. You may find that when you put out your own audiobook, you connect with fans in a different way. But finding a lower-pressure book to begin with will help you a whole lot. Corinne Norton had a brilliant way of doing this that is very stealable for many authors. She created a podcast called Finding Fantasy Reads, where she reads the short stories of fellow authors whose books are similar to hers. And so these short stories are 30 minutes long. They're an hour long. Each episode is a contained story. So it's not like what you're doing, Scott. It builds on itself. But she's able to practice in a really safe 
environment. And by the time she reads her own book, she's done all these short stories and she's really rapidly worked her way up the learning curve while building a platform of exactly her kind of reader and making good friends with other authors who now owe her a favor for having featured their short story. And what Corinne is doing in fantasy can be done in any genre. There's a lot of room for this kind of podcast, and I don't see a lot of authors doing that. Yep, that's a wonderful idea. That will really help as long as you're getting the chops. All of this is getting in the gym and doing the reps, and there's so many things you have no idea that you don't know until you get on that mic and you start editing things. So that's a wonderful solution. So you've just finished writing your book and it's time to make the audiobook. Walk us through your workflow. What are the steps and stages that you take that Word document or Scrivener document to turn it into a finished audiobook? When you say finish, it's already gone through our continuity editor. I'm probably on the third, fourth draft. It's gone to the line editor, so we've got all the grammar and everything else squared away because there's a lot of things in that process where when you get into disagreements with your editor about how this should be phrased, et cetera, that's going to help you with the read. Then our system is pretty simple. We take the Microsoft Word. We put that on the iPad. The iPad's on a bracket in our recording booth. If you have an office, it's even remotely quiet. You can do this in your office. There's now software out there that will do all of the pre-production for you, can get rid of breaths, get rid of noise. It can do a lot of things. So then we read, and for our full-length novels, we're breaking them down into chapters. We finish a chapter, then that gets saved, and that gets uploaded to the cloud where our editor comes through and takes it down and edits it. So now we don't wait till the whole book is done before we have people editing and going through to find punch-ins. Because the other thing is, even if you're meticulously careful, you're going to screw things up. You're going to have a word. You're going to slur words. You're not going to know you did it. And until you have somebody else listen to it that's not you, you're probably not going to catch that. So our step is book's finished. It's all edited. Cue it up on an iPad. Get in the booth. Record it. We have somebody else editing at this point, but if people are listening to this, they may want to edit themselves, which is wonderful. Absolutely go through and edit yourself. Then you figure out the parts you screwed up. And this is where all that stuff is fairly easy. This is just hit the button and record. When you get to punch-ins, it's a little trickier. That's where you have to recognize, okay, I had the wrong character's name here and I didn't notice it till I got to the end of the book. You really need to, before you start, be cognizant of the environment you're recording in. You don't want to change a mic in the middle of a book. You also don't want to change a mic to come in and do punch-ins. So accept the gear you have and that's the gear you're going to start and finish with so that when you do have to do a punch-in, you kind of take that whole sentence and then you have to edit that in to your existing audio track and then it's all going to sound pretty similar. It's one thing that will affect your audiobook quality is if your punch-ins sound like they were recorded in a different room, that will take people out of the story. You absolutely can do that. If you have no choice and you're okay with it, go ahead. But it will take people out of your story. It takes you a few minutes to get them back. I just finished re-listening to Starship Troopers, and the narrator's punch-ins are so awful. <laughs> he's like, it, he, either he hadn't warmed up his voice ahead of time or he's on a completely different microphone. It sounds like he got the list of punch-ins while he was at a hotel, and he just, like, did it on his laptop computer or something. And it's very obvious. It's one of the only books I've ever listened to where the punch-ins are really obvious. For software, I recommend Hindenburg Narrator. You can load in your book into Hindenburg, and as you're reading it, you can track, and it makes finding the punch-ins a lot easier. I have an okay. episode all about Hindenburg Narrator with somebody from Hindenburg. Scott, do you use Positron for tracking punch-ins and for doing the feedback back and forth? 
No, at this point, the I just get a list of punch-ins from our editor. And we, Steve Rickyberg has been our editor for, I think, 10 years now. So he really understands all the content. He's the one who did the lion's share of the editing on the Galactic Football League series, which is a very complicated audiobook to do. A lot of character voices, filters, a lot of crowd sounds, little FX in there. So at this point, I am lucky enough that I don't have to track that. I just, I get the list, I punch him in the microphone and send those to Steve and he does the rest. Yeah, because that's another thing, talking about effects. That's a lot easier now, right? You can go and there's libraries online of sound effects that you can mm -hmm. just buy and you can start using them and adding different voices and effects. Some of your aliens, you know, have a real obvious effect on them that makes them sound really alien. Walk us through like the cost of that, because obviously everyone would love to have a fully produced cast with dozens of different people doing the voices and all these sound right. effects. How do you know where to draw the line of just enough to elevate it without spending your whole budget on Hollywood production? If it's in the first or second book people do, I would recommend strongly don't do any audio effects. Leave that all alone. Don't bring any other act. Don't have anyone record in another location. Just read it yourself. And then you will be a master of the process because all of these little things that sound, oh, I'll just put in a couple of sound effects. It's way more complicated and it slows your production time down dramatically. And that's, again, that's time you are not in front of your keyboard working on your series, working on your next book, which is the most important thing you do as a writer is continue to produce finished works and put them out into the marketplace. Once you've got a couple under your belt, you do got to look at budget and it's also the opportunity cost. If you're going to introduce these elements yourself and you're not, experience with audio, you're going to burn a lot of time. So the opportunity cost you're going to go through is going to take away from writing content. It's going to take away from time with your family. If you have a day job, it's going to take away from all that stuff. It's take a lot longer for you to get an audiobook out to market. So that's a zero dollar cost if you do it yourself, but the opportunity cost is going to be significant. Budget wise, I think if you're going to get an audio editor, you got to start probably putting around anywhere from 1500 to 3000 bucks. My books are, some of them are 18 to 24 hours long. It's a huge job and we're getting an absolute bargain by having someone else do this work. So it does become the costly thing to hire an editor. I do think editing without sound effects is something that the author can do themselves. You record the book, no sound effects, then you sit down and learn how to edit. And it take, takes as long as it takes for the first book. Don't worry about it. Then after that, there's so few things you have to do in editing. Like I use Logic Pro by Apple, and I would guess I use probably 2 to 3% of the potential of that application. I know how to crossfade. I know how to cut. I know how to drag chunks. That's it. It's, there's very little to it. So you can do all of that yourself. And then if you're, if you have success, you can go out and hire an audio editor. Yeah. Logic Pro is very powerful. You can do the sound effects for a whole film in Logic yep. Pro. If you're just getting started, Logic Pro is probably overkill. Hindenburg's specifically made for narration. It's a lot easier. Now let's switch gears because you don't always narrate your books. And I love how you're talking about opportunity cost. And for those of you who aren't familiar with this kind of thinking, when you're trying to make a decision, don't ask, is this a good thing or a bad thing to do? Because that doesn't help. Instead, say, how does this compare to my next best alternative? Right? Because it's good for Scott to record his audiobook, but it's also good for him to write another book. Right? If you, if you could write half a book in three weeks, now you're comparing what's better, having gotten a lot of progress on my next book or having recorded my audiobook. And that helps you make a more informed decision. So now that you're also working with narrators, walk us through that process. How do you select 
a good narrator. I got recommendations from Jonathan Mayberry, who is a colleague and a friend of mine, and he had been working with Ray Porter. And we were to a point where my business partner and I realized that we had budget to hire a big time narrator. So Jonathan had me listen to his books narrated by Ray. I'm like, this guy's great. And we just reached out to Ray and I was very surprised. Ray said, this is what it'll cost you. I'm like, okay, let's do that. That's really all it came down to. Sometimes it's hard to get a hold of these narrators, but remember they are business people running their own small business. And if you can show up with a check and hire them to do a book, they're going to absolutely do that book. So it's not as complicated as it sounds. Don't get imposter syndrome. If you like Scott Brick, go find his website, reach out to him, figure out if you can afford it. And if you can afford it, when could the narrator get to the project and when could you expect it to be completed? And then you can make your decisions from there. We also tracked down Emma Galvin the same way she did the Divergent series. Just went for, went to her website, tracked her down and, and hired her from there. Largely, it's if you listen to a lot of audiobooks and you hear a narrator that you really like, that's exciting to you, that's worth going after. See if you can afford that person. If not, then you just keep looking around. Because narrators have their own followings. Yeah. You can click on a narrator's name in Audible and see what other books they've read. And I've done that as an audiobook power buyer. <laughs> I'll sometimes be like, man, I really like that narrator. And I've, he, I've heard him do a bunch of the kind of books that I like. What else is he doing? And his taste in books starts to become an influence on what I like. With Ray, his audience was a huge part of the success of my novel, Earthcore. So Earthcore has done just fine in print. It's done just fine on Kindle. But an audiobook, it's our biggest hit by far. And it's doing extremely well even after five years later. That was a combination of my audience, my content, Ray's style, Ray's audience coming together and that impacting the algorithm and spreading it out to a lot of new people. And it's done very well. We tried to do the same thing with Emma Galvin, who had done Divergent, which was a huge, huge success. And we did not catch fire with that one at all. That particular combination did not work as well. But yeah, you are better off with a narrator who's got a track record and has books with five to 10,000 reviews out there in Audible. And then you just go find who they are and see if you can afford them. If you can't, you got to try somewhere else. And there's other alternatives to that as well. And if you can't afford a celebrity where you know, okay, Emma Galvin, I know I want her voice. I want her audience. Don't be afraid of holding an audition, right? Don't just reach out to one person, reach out to two or three at least, maybe five or six. There are platforms that make it really easy to host an audition. ACX will do it. Find Away Voices will do it where you can invite narrators to audition and they have a whole procedure for doing that. And that way you can make an apples to apples comparison and you can hear, give them the same text, right? You hear how they do your voices and interact with them a little bit and see which ones are easy to interact with because it's yeah. not just how good they sound. It's also how easy are they to work with? How busy are they? I really think that it's worth delaying your launch to have the audiobook on day one because all of your promotion efforts for your launch day will be wasted on your audiobook only fans if the audiobook's not ready. So that's yep. a part of the thought process of like, okay, I really want this narrator, but they can't get the book back for a year. Am I willing to delay the book? Yes or no? And so you want to think through that ahead of time. And ACX is great too. If you're really on a budget and you don't want to be on the microphone at all, but you want your audiobook, you can go post the book there post samples, invite people to audition for it. And then it's amazing they offer this, but 
if you find the right narrator who's willing to work with you, you can set up a revenue split. So they get something that narrators usually don't get, which is a royalty. That will get someone to commit to doing your book if you don't have the right budget for it. And it's a great way to get the audiobook done when you just don't have the resources to go out and hire a narrator. Yeah. And some people are like, oh, but I'm splitting this tiny royalty 50-50 with a narrator. It's not very much money. It's like, yeah, but it's more than the zero dollars you'd be making off an audiobook if you didn't have an audiobook, right? What's your next best alternative? If your next best alternative is not having an audiobook, then a rev share with an ACX narrator is absolutely better than not having an audiobook. So let's compare the process. So you've, you've got your finished manuscript, it's done all the edits, and you picked a narrator. Walk us through the process of making the audiobook working with a narrator. I've lightened up a lot on this. I was very obsessive about the gentleman who did Nocturnal for us, which is we got the audiobook rights back from Random House for that because they just weren't doing anything with him. And he's a wonderful, wonderful narrator, powerful voice. He'd also been doing this for a while, but I sort of knew what I wanted. And so I was giving him feedback on, I don't want this much of a pause between the end of the dialogue and he said or she said. And can you do these things? Can you do these things? And I really micromanaged him a lot. He handled it very well. He's very professional. But I was out of line, frankly, with a lot of the management. And I got what I wanted, but it took a long time. And the process really wasn't any fun. And after that, I'm like, I'm going to have to back off on this because if a narrator is coming with their own audience and they've got experience, you largely need to let them do their thing. If they will consult with you and go through, you know, looking for a New York accent here and this guy's sort of from Florida, maybe not. You could do this. You could do this. You can throw those out there and there's something like this. You got to have Southside Chicago accent. No way around it. Can you do this accent? Otherwise we're not going to work together. Those are all okay ahead of time. But once the process gets rolling. You need to let the professionals do what they do. If they're coming to you for information, that's great. Like Bronson Pinchot did Aliens Phalanx. And even though I didn't hire him, I was texting with him 10 to 12 times a day. I was getting texts at three o'clock in the morning because that was his workflow. And it was extremely, extremely collaborative. And I was always there as a resource Anytime he reached out, I was ready to go. I didn't tell him which way to do things, but if he asked me a question, I gave him the answer. Ray Porter, on the other hand, has now just finished his third book for us, uh, which just came out called The Crypt Shakedown. I didn't hear from him at all. Book's done. I haven't listened to it. I, just, <laughs> I, I haven't even heard it yet. I've heard that from the fans, there's a couple of things that the pronunciations aren't quite right for the, you know, the nitty-gritty nomenclature of the Sigliverse. And I'm like, that's cool. I'm like, I, I don't care because he gets stuff done his way. He brings a lot to the table and he's a far better actor and interpreter than I would ever be. So it's gone from I manage every little thing and I'm, I'm all up in the narrator's grill and to where it is now where I'm like, let the narrator do what they do. I think that's really good. And especially for fantasy sci-fi, you can get away with that. I do think it's important to listen to the first chapter if you can. Jim Burton had a, a book that he wrote with a female protagonist. They, his publisher hired a female narrator. And his books take place in the real world in Washington. And there's all these cities and places in Washington named after Indian tribes. And the narrator got the pronunciation of these towns wrong. Like there's an objective way of saying Chelan. And you can't call it Chalan. Like everyone who's been to Washington will know that that's wrong. <laughs> 
and his publisher didn't loop him in until it was already too late. And so if you listen to the audiobook, it's got all of these wrong pronunciations and it's frustrating because there's nothing he can do. Yeah, that would be maddening. I'd be absolutely infuriating. So yeah, if you can listen to the first chapter, that's good. But even if you really, even if you really micromanage the situation, like I go through and actually record all of the pronunciations of all the off words and I deliver an MP3 to the narrator. And then I have a source book, probably 10, 12 pages. Like here's phonetic spelling of everything. Here's what this, here's what this weird word means. So, you know, words I make up, I give them this huge, give them all these resources and some of them read it and some of them don't. And there's, for me at this point, this is again, more opportunity cost. If I let that go, I'm more focused on the other things that I am the expert in and let them do it. But your advice to when you start working out with someone, yeah, do it one chapter at a time, at least for the first five chapters. Ask a lot of questions. Tell the narrator ahead of time, this is my first audiobook. I'm going to ask a lot of questions. Is that okay? And hopefully they tell you the truth and say it's okay. Because I've had narrators say, yeah, man, totally collaborative. I'll be right there. And then they just ghost and deliver a finished book. And you're like, that, that's the book. Just like your friend you're talking about. It's like, got to go to market with what I got. I cannot wait another year to put this thing out. Right now, I'm listening to Monster Hunter Memoirs Fever by Larry Correa with a female protagonist. So he's brought in a new narrator. And my whole rule on, like, you got to stick with the narrator, that goes out the window. If the protagonist is female, I think bringing in a female narrator is a good idea. And it's interesting to listen to her do her version of characters that are known from the other books. So her doing Earl or her doing Franks. And I, as a listener, I really enjoyed it because I can tell that the narrator did the effort to listen to some of the other books. And so she's mm -hmm. giving a performance that's similar, right? The accents are similar, but it's also different because she's a female doing the big hulking Franks. And for me, it's a very enjoyable listen to get that different perspective. And also it's a co-written book, so it's got a slightly different writing style, but in the same universe. So that works. And you could tell that the communication was really well done early on, where it's like, hey, listen to this book, listen to how these characters are performed so you can at least put them in the same universe. <laughs> so it sounds like a, the female version of the male version of this, not like a completely different version of this character. Yeah, that's good. You do get, when you switch things around a property like that, you can get people who just haven't listened to the original source material. And for a guy like Larry, that's a tall order. I mean, I don't know if Larry, Larry's got, what, 89 books in that series or something like that. You can't expect the narrator to go listen to all of those. So if you're going to switch up, like, here, you need to listen to this book, this book, and this book. I'll pay you for your time to listen to these books. Do the best you can to get in this ballpark. And it sounds like she did. Or do the work as the author. And again, knowing a little bit of audio editing is really helpful. It's like, okay, I have 100 characters in this book series, but the only characters in this book are these five. I've gone in and I've cut out samples of these characters being performed. So just listen to this 20-minute piece of audio, and that'll give you a sense for how to do the performance. And so with a little bit of work on your part, you can save the narrator a lot of work. And this is where having those skills can be really useful. I would recommend if your listeners are going to do their own audiobook, what you just suggested is really important. So if you are doing a straight read with no characters, no inflection, anything like that, no problem. If you want to try doing character voices while you're recording the book, right? The first time this character shows up, you want to isolate that piece of audio and save it as a separate MP3. Uh, we call those buttons. So if I've come up with a character all by myself, I've got about 15 to 30 seconds, a little thing I listen to every time that character comes up. What I tend to do is 
I am impersonating an impersonator impersonating a big actor. So (laughs) (laughs) it wouldn't be Dwayne Johnson. It would be a comedian impersonating Dwayne Johnson. Then I impersonate the comedian and I'm probably up to 300 plus characters, different characters with different voices that I've recorded. I can't keep these things straight. So, So when I have buttons for them, even if it's listening to Dwayne Johnson as The Rock saying something in the ring, that still puts me in the right mindset. I get the right inflection. And again, these are not professional impressions. No one's going to think it's Dwayne Johnson doing the voice, but it helps me take my voice to do something that doesn't sound like my other characters. So whether I've come up with a character myself or whether we are basing it off of someone else, we've got these audio clips always at the ready. And I can tell my producer, like, can you play that one clip? Can you play that one clip? Okay, here's character B. Can I hear that? Do that a few times. It will save you an enormous amount of time and really save you the frustration and embarrassment of your character at the end of the book sounds completely different than your character at the beginning of the book because that's something that readers will notice. If you don't even keep your own voices straight and the character sounds like a completely different person, that will not go well. You would love Hindenburg because it has that feature built in. You can have a library of you recording the pronunciation of that elven place name. And so then before every time you're like, is it Alethkar? And you go and you push and it's got it right there and you can hear yourself saying the pronunciation so that you can then say it again. It's a big time saver and really key, especially for fantasy and sci-fi or for people writing stories that take place in parts of the country where things are pronounced weird. So if your story takes place in Louisiana, if your story takes place in Washington, it's really important to have some kind of system for keeping those pronunciations straight. So in terms of marketing, what do you do to promote your audiobook other than having a award-winning best-selling podcast, <laughs> which I feel is a bit of a cheat code when it comes to audiobook marketing, having a podcast? It's not easy, and I don't have easy answers for it. The core element of all marketing things for any author, in my opinion, is your website, email list, social media. Those are things that you have to be doing. You have to have a landing page. You have to have a place for people to go. Don't make it Substack. Don't make it Tumblr. You can use those things, but when ownership changes or content changes or uh, consumption tastes change, all of that effort goes away and you don't have that information anymore. Getting your website together, starting in on an email list from square one, because that's the one thing you get to hold on to. I had like 24,000 followers on Twitter. I don't even use Twitter anymore because I don't like where the program's at right now. So all that effort, by and large, is gone. If you do these three things, even when you're starting out, by the time you're in your fourth or fifth book putting out audiobooks, you'll have a battery of people that you can motivate to go pre-order. So for audiobooks, it's important. Pre-order, I believe it's still the case, pre-orders roll up to week one on Audible. And if you're able to get, say your 500 fans to go buy the book before it comes out on day one, you've got a possibility to chart on one of the charts on audible. And that helps trip the algorithm a little bit. And it also gives you a great marketing angle. Hey, book was top 20 in fantasy on audible. You guys, and you get to hold on to that forever and ever, even if you drop off the charts immediately. So the core element to marketing audiobooks is developing your fan base, communicating with your fan base, and not being afraid to ask your fan base to go buy a particular product on a certain day or to pre-order a product. Everything outside of that is not my area of expertise. That's big, and I want to reiterate that because that's different than how Amazon Kindle works, that roll-up. That's iBooks works this way, but the fact that you get to count the pre-orders on launch day is big. It makes having a pre-order way more advantageous. I haven't tested it myself, but uh, yeah, get your pre-order 
up there. And I will say, if you're curious what a good author website looks like, go to scottsigler.com. <laughs> Scott redid his website, and the current version is great. It's a very well laid out website. All it needs is a what books to read in what order <laughs> page, and then it will be perfect. So we'll have a link to it in the show notes, scottsigler.com. You can subscribe to his podcast to hear him doing these performances, you know, one chapter a week. What of your audiobooks that you've recorded would you say would be an example of it, your best work of like if somebody wants to listen, start here? Well, the one I would recommend is called The Rookie. And you got now, if you're listening to this, you got to hear this whole thing because this is a story about an American pro football league 700 years in the future with aliens playing different positions based on their physiology. So this may sound like it's a sports story and it is, but it's your traditional fantasy hero's journey. It's the main character, Quentin Barnes, coming into the league as a 17 year old young prodigy and moving through his quest to try and attain his goal. And football is largely a backdrop to everything. It's not what the story is about. The story is about the characters and the past they go through and the dangers they face. But the backdrop being football gave us the opportunity to do a lot of sound effects. There's a lot of sound effects for the games. The different alien races all have a particular vocal filter. So if it is a member of the quiz species, even though I have 20 different characters in that species and I perform all of them differently with their own personality, you apply that little filter to it and the reader automatically knows after four or five chapters, like, that's this species, that's this species. And it's this really cool thing. So if you want to see how far you can go by doing it yourself, you can listen to The Rookie. My gateway book into your Sigliverse was The Stone Wolves. As a military sci-fi fan, that was a great gateway. But then in the story, they're watching football on the TV. And I'm like, what is this strange football game? <laughs> I was like, oh, if you want to learn more about this strange football game, there's a lot of books about it. And suddenly I'm sucked in. Scott Sigler, any final advice or encouragement? You learn by doing things badly. If you don't know how to do this, just start doing it. Grab some short stories, whatever, and get used to the process. You will be very frustrated to begin with. And shortly after being fr very frustrated, like, you will know you can do this. It's possible. And even if you are the worst narrator on the face of the earth, you're still the author reading a story to people. And that touches emotions in a way that is not replicable any other way. ScottSigler.com is the website. And speaking of websites, if you would like help making your website better, the kind of website that your readers want to visit, new readers want to discover, and most importantly, helps you build your email list and sell more books, I have a course to help you. The first part of the course walks you through how to build a website if you don't have one already. And the second part of the course talks about how to optimize your website, how to make it more appealing, how to get more traffic, how to make it work better, even how to make it more secure. And the best part of this course is it's my free gift to you, my listeners. You can find the course, How to Make an Amazing Author Website, at authormedia.com. Just go to authormedia.com and click on courses. It's the very first one, and it is absolutely free. Our featured patron today is Larisha Matuska, author of The Healer's Rune. In order to save her people from being wiped out, Sabine, a human healer, must overcome generations of bitterness, suspicion, and fear, and forge an alliance among enemy races. But what chance does she have when one of those races is extinct and her dreams of freedom threaten every remaining race on the planet? Larisha Matuska, thank you so much for being a patron of the podcast. Thank you for your support that keeps these episodes coming to you 
every week. And if you would like to become a patron, you can just go to authormedia.com forward slash patron. That's authormedia.com forward slash patron. The Novel Marketing Podcast is a production of authormedia.com. Our guest today was Scott Sigler. Our producer is Lloyd Christine. Audio engineering by William Umstadt. And the blog post is crafted by Shauna Lettler. You can find that blog version at authormedia.com slash 397. I'm Thomas Umstadt Jr. saying thank you for listening and live long and prosper.